back at this church. This is a little bit of a home from home for us. Uh, we love coming back here and uh, our kids come back here. Uh, they, they've been very excited to be with you this morning. In fact, I think one time when I was here, I brought one of my, uh, our, we've got three children. I think I brought our middle boy, Joel, and I think there were donuts on that occasion. And you have forever been known in our home as the Donut Church, uh, which is a great way to bring people in, I think. Uh, Joel certainly, uh, he was actually looking under the table for donuts. I mean, he's convinced they're in the building, but... Uh, Anyway, uh, it's great to be with you, and, um, and this is home from home. We have so many uh, wonderful friends here, and uh, Ant and Helen have been great friends to us. I think the last time we were here, we were celebrating Ant's, was it your 70th, Ant, was that right? <laughs> uh, which is a great occasion, uh, so um, he's looking very good for it. But, uh, so it's great to be with you. As Ant said, we have moved to Peterborough. I'm, I've been given a funded scholarship to do a PhD, and I've got two years to get that done. Um, at uh, some universities in Nottingham, Leicester, and Cambridge, so it's, it's sort of a, piece, a joint piece there, and uh, working just very part-time for a church called Kingsgate, so it's been a good move for us and a good learning experience, but it's great to be with you, and as I was talking to Ant about what to preach on, uh, we kind of came to a mutual agreement that it'd be good to talk a bit about prayer this morning, so I want to I speak on prayer, and... Um, a few weeks ago, we, we've got three children, as I said. Our oldest, Lucy, is a great believer in prayer, actually. And our youngest, uh, Toby, is a great believer in Fireman Sam. Um, interesting combination. I remember one, one time, it was probably about two weeks ago, uh, Toby had been finally uh, banned from watching any more, any more screen time. He wasn't allowed to watch any more Fireman Sam. He was absolutely devastated, you know, livid he was. He, he, he stormed off upstairs to commit some minor acts of vandalism in his bedroom, probably. He's only two, but, you know... Uh, and uh, so he storms up upstairs, and Lucy, very concerned from she's sick, she follows him up, and I eventually, hearing some commotion, followed them both up. And I, as I came into the room, I overheard the conversation, and Lucy was saying to Toby, Toby, if you want to watch Fireman Sam, you need to pray. Which <laughs> is quite cute, isn't it? And I think Toby slightly misheard her, and he said, I don't want to play, I want to watch Fireman Sam. Uh, to which Lucy replied, and this is the line I want to use as a bit of a title for the message this morning, she said, no, no, Toby, she said, you need to pray, because it really actually works. It really actually works. I think she's been watching a bit of Charlie and Lola as well, if you know anything about that. I think she got that book. But that's my title this morning. I want to say to Forest Town Church corporately and to everyone here individually, you need to pray because it really actually works. I don't know if that's been your experience. Prayer to you may be a formula or something that you've recited in school assemblies, and it's never been something that you've actually thought... By praying, I'm changing things. But I want to say this morning, that is exactly what happens when someone, a human being, here on planet Earth, prays in the name of Jesus. It really, actually works. And I think it's hard for us to appreciate this, sometimes because when we pray, we we perform some kind of, if you like, invisible act. We're not seemingly taking action, are we? We're not making something or typing something or doing something that we can say, because of that hour I just spent, this is what I've done. It'd be lovely, wouldn't it, if when we prayed, there was almost a gauge in front of us and you saw the needle sort of moving up as you prayed. And you wrote, yes, this is really powerful. But it's easy to therefore lose track of the fact that when we pray, it really actually works. And to really believe that. As a church corporately, I heard a, uh, an amusing story. I, I think this is a spoof, but it's, it's amusing. Of a church in Texas, uh, in, America, in America, and uh, next door to this, this Southern Baptist church, um, a bar was opening. Someone was opening a building, a bar, and the church was not very pleased about this. It wasn't the sort of next door neighbor they wanted. So they began to pray. They actually had a special prayer meeting to pray that God would somehow shut this bar down even before it opened. And lo and behold, uh, just a few weeks before the bar was completed, the, the renovation, the, the, a lightning bolt struck this building and burnt it to the ground. 
Now, the bar owner heard that the church had been praying in the way they had and sued the church. (laughs) At which point the church turned around and denied any responsibility for what had happened to the bar. And this apparently went to the courts and the judge looked over the evidence and then he summed up like this. He said, I don't know how I'm going to decide this case, but it appears to me from the paperwork, we have a bar owner who does believe in the power of prayer. (laughs) and an entire church congregation that doesn't. <laughs> God forbid that we should have an entire church congregation that doesn't believe in the power of prayer. It really actually works. And one of the books of the Bible written in many ways to prove this or to show this is the book of Acts. Because one of the acts, if you like, that the church performs is prayer. You see the early church at prayer, and as they pray things change. In Acts chapter 2, or if you don't quite click on just yet, wait wait till I'm reading. In Acts chapter 2, they pray, uh, and the day of Pentecost comes, and human history is forever changed, as the church is born, in one sense, with 3,000 people coming to faith. Then in Acts chapter 4, we're going to look at in a moment, they pray again, and God brings another breakthrough, and then the church goes to 5,000 people. We're meant to get the message, it really actually works. And so I want to home in on one prayer meeting at the early church. This is like a fly-on-the-wall documentary of what happened when the early church prayed. And uh, may it inspire us as we read then. So click on to the next slide. You'll see Acts chapter 4, verse 23, we read this. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, saying, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you had anointed. They did what your power and will had already decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now, when we read a passage of the Bible, I think one of the most helpful ways to think it through is to ask it some questions. So I propose to ask five questions of this passage this morning. Firstly, when? Secondly, who? Thirdly, why? Fourthly, what? And fifthly, how? The first is, when did they pray? And the answer to that is very simple. After further threats, the Jewish rulers let them go. Peter and John had been arrested. They'd been brought before trial by the Jewish authorities. They couldn't hold them any longer. They realized they didn't really have a reason to keep them or imprison them. But just before letting them go, they threatened them even further. Now, in that context, we read, they raised their voices together in prayer. In other words, they prayed. When did they pray? They prayed when they felt threatened. 
Now, I don't know about you, but life has ways of bringing certain threats our way, doesn't it? Circumstances, people, potential future scenarios that feel intimidating and threatening. Anyone else have some of those in the back of your mind right now? Possibly in the forefront of your mind when you couldn't sleep properly last night. Life has a way of intimidating us, doesn't it? The question is, though, what do we do when we face the threats and intimidations of scenarios? The early Christians, almost as a knee-jerk reaction, they prayed. Prayer for them was a first resource, not a last resort. Can I say that again? Prayer for them was a first resort. I'll try and say that again. (laughs) Prayer for them was a first resource, not a last resort. How is that true for us? Is that true for us? You know, it's so easy when we pray to have several other default modes that we then, sorry, when we face intimidation that we then act out of. One can be instead of praying, we panic. (laughs) We go into an anxiety mode that causes turbulence to stir all around us. And before we know it, we've not prayed, but we have enlarged the scenario to be something completely out of our control and causing turmoil around us. One thing we can do instead of pray is panic. Another thing sometimes that we can do instead of praying and finding God's peace is we feel the fear and act out of it in anger. You know, I think so often anger is actually us acting out of fear, isn't it? We feel threatened, so we become threatening, almost as a way of compensating for the fact that we're scared. You know, these early believers, instead of acting out of the negatives, they sought the positive place of prayer. You know, as, as, as a church... As parents, as those in the workplace, we are called to be those who, when we feel the challenges of life, our first resource is prayer, not our last resort. I thank God for growing up in a family where my parents, though not perfect, they, they modeled something of this. I, I can remember on several occasions, and actually we've, uh, on our way here today, or, or last night, we stayed with my sister who lives further around the M25 in, near Isha in Surrey, and uh, we used to live there. And I remember on one occasion, we drove through Isha High Street and I saw um, a charity shop there. And it jogged my memory of an occasion when I was going, uh, I was in the secondary school. I was going to a school called Hampton School, uh, just near Hampton Court. And um, I think I needed a new school blazer to go into this school. But the school, very cleverly, as they often do, they only sold their blazers in their own school shop. You know this clever tactic to charge ridiculous prices for a black black blazer with a badge sewn onto it? But you couldn't get it anywhere else. And I remember my mother saying to me, there is a bit of a problem, she said, we can't afford the blazer for you. (laughs) And so I was, you know, obviously, you you don't want to be the kid who doesn't have. So I was very cross about this or worried about this. And I remember my mom saying, she said, but we're going to pray about it. And I remember laughing. I remember just, (laughs) what's that going to do? How, how is God going to drop a blazer out of heaven? You know, it's ridiculous. Pray about it. What's that going to do? My mum was like, no, no, we'll pray about it. So she prayed. I didn't pray. I'm not praying. What's the point of that? So she prayed. I think it was about a day later that she went to Isha, went to this charity shop, and there in this charity, charity shop, in the exact size for me, was a Hampton School blazer for, I don't know, two pounds. It really actually works. And I thank God for parents who taught me that we don't panic, we pray. Amen? When we feel the intimidation and challenges of circumstances, prayer is not our last resort, it is our first resource. It really actually works. Maybe this morning you are feeling bullied, intimidated and threatened in life. Can I ask you this morning, are you allowing God to minister to that fear in prayer?
it really actually works. When did they pray? When they felt threatened, they prayed. Secondly, who prayed? Did you notice this in the passage? Who prayed? And the answer is Peter and John, along with their friends. Now, Peter and John, to us, are infamous, aren't they? This is the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John. The Apostle John wrote huge chunks of the New Testament. The Apostle Peter, if you're from the Catholic tradition at all, is the original Pope, you know, the the, the father of the church, humanly speaking, in Rome. These are hugely important people through church history. But let's not forget that at the time that we're looking at, they were nobodies. Absolutely nothing of importance in this world. They were nobodies. In other words, I want to remind you this morning, when we ask the question, who prays with great power, I'll tell you who, nobodies. (laughs) People who this world does not consider to be important, when they pray, it's powerful. See, Peter and John, earlier in the passage, in chapter 4, verse 13, when they were arrested for speaking powerfully about Jesus, it says that the authorities were astonished because they noticed that these were uneducated, common men. Three things just worth commenting on. Uneducated, common men. Firstly, they were uneducated. The Apostle Peter probably could not read or write. Isn't that interesting? We know for certain that Mark was his interpreter, but it's quite possible that he was also his scribe because he was illiterate. He was a fisherman from Galilee. He he was not educated. He would have failed his SATs test at primary school, (laughs) the great Apostle Peter. And not only were they uneducated, they were common men. That is a way of saying they were not the VIPs of their day. They were not important people. They were the men who did the practical jobs for the important people. (laughs) Notice that. But when they prayed, God answered. Isn't that wonderful? Prayer is a total leveler. It doesn't matter how much people in the world listen to you or don't. When you pray, God listens. Isn't that extraordinary? You may feel that in your position at work, I, I heard a comedian recently joke about how in his career trajectory he went from being the guy who made the tea for the guy who makes the coffee. <laughs> I thought that's a great way of summing it up. I, some of you may feel like you're in your organization at work, you're the person who makes the tea for the person who makes the coffee. But when you pray in the name of Jesus, it really actually works. Prayer is a great leveler. God does not respond to VIPs. He has no regard for your high status or low status in this world. His concern is that you pray in the name of Jesus Christ through faith in him. And then it's powerful and effective. It says this, they noticed, they were astonished that these were uneducated, common men, and then it says, and they took note that they had been with Jesus. That's what matters when we pray. It's that we're with Jesus, and it's powerful and effective. Could I also just point out the third of those, though? They were uneducated, common men. <laughs> just to give the, break, the ladies a break just for a moment. Men, can I point out, these men, they prayed. Now, they were not soft church boys. They were not choir boys. These were fishermen, hard men. They they knew how to do a hard day's work. These were tough men. They they were not soft church boys. They they were not people who... They were not men who liked eating quiche and drinking elderflower presse or whatever it might be. They didn't cry watching Billy Elliot or whatever it might be. uh, So these, these were not soft men, but they were men who prayed. And I think we live in a world that's very confused about what a man actually is anymore. Confused about what masculinity is. And we we range from various extremes, one of which is that to be a real man is defined around how much you can bench press, how many pints you can down, how many women you can get into the sack, whatever it may be. 
Listen, can I give us a basic working definition of what a real man is? A real man prays. A Christian man prays. A Christian man may or may not be able to do all kinds of other things. They may or may not be a leader type. They may or may not be good at communicating or whatever else it may be. But every true Christian man is a man who prays. Prays with their wives and for their wives, with their children and for their children, for their work and, and in their work. A real Christian man prays. I think it really just boils down to that, doesn't it? They were men who prayed. Men, can I, can I challenge us and encourage us to be men who pray? There are many other things that we can't do, and we'll feel our limits and our inadequacies in many different ways, but one thing we can do is pray in the name of Jesus. Real Christian men, and now let's come back to all of us, be inclusive. Real Christian men and, and women, we pray. So that was who. Thirdly, why. Why did they pray? And the answer to this is not because of who they were, I think we've covered that one, it's because of who God is. They prayed because God is sovereign. Why do we pray? They called out, uh, as the next slide shows you, why did they pray? They called out, Sovereign Lord. They raised their voices together in prayer. Sovereign Lord, they said. The reason that we pray is not because of who we are, but because of who God is. He is the Sovereign Lord. It's interesting that the word they chose, the Greek word for Lord here, that that Luke, who wrote Acts, chose here, is not the most obvious word, which is kurios, but another word, you'll you'll recognize this, despotes. That's a Greek word from which we get our word, a despotic ruler. What does that mean? It's normally used in a negative sense of here's a ruler who's out of control. Yeah? Here's a ruler who seems to just do whatever they please and no one can seem to stop him, and they say, yes, and that's our God. The, The good news is, he's good. (laughs) But he's also despotic in the sense that he is absolutely sovereign. No one bosses him around. No one controls him. He's not on anyone's lead. He's not a domesticated God. He's the sovereign Lord. Now, when we pray then, one of the reasons we pray is because of who God is. Surely if you had access to the despotic ruler of the universe, you'd take use of that access and you'd pray because it really actually works. And they remind themselves of two ways in which God is sovereign. Firstly, they say, God, you're sovereign in creation. This is the way they put it. You made the heavens and the earth. They remind themselves that God is the creator, sovereign God. Sometimes it's good, isn't it, to appreciate the power of God by appreciating the world that he has made. This this world is under his control. He's sovereign over nature. Sometimes if you look to the heavens, look to the stars, and consider our smallness compared to his greatness, it's actually an incentive to pray. I was uh, reading someone who, who helped me to think this through. They said, if you want to get a sense of the scale of this universe, apparently if you took a, a piece of paper like this, and the, and the thickness of this paper is, if we, if we say that is proportionally equivalent to the distance from our planet Earth to our sun, okay? that, that thickness is, is, is that equivalence. And then you ask the question, so how many other pieces of paper would you need to map out the equivalent of the distance from our Earth to the edge of our galaxy, the Milky Way? Not just, not the universe, just our galaxy. Apparently, you would need to stack up 330 meters of paper to map out the equivalent distance just to the edge of our galaxy, and that is one of millions of other galaxies, and the Sovereign Lord made them all. That's why we pray <laughs> to this God who rules over all things. Not just that he's sovereign in creation, though, they also point out that he's sovereign in redemption. They, they, they quote Psalm 2, in which they ask, the psalmist is asking this question, why do the nations oppose God? Why do they challenge God? 
And, and they refer to Pontius Pilate and those earthly rulers who tried to oppose the work of God through Jesus Christ. And they managed to do that by putting Jesus to death. God sent his anointed son and the worldly powers killed him. And what did that achieve? The very thing that God intended, the salvation of the world. (laughs) It was in and through the death of Jesus Christ that God was going to take away the evil and sin that otherwise would rebound on us and by placing it on his son, bring us forgiveness. And here's the point they make. Even when wicked men try their hardest to stop God, they end up simply serving his plan. He's so sovereign, he's not just sovereign in a good world, he's sovereign in a bad world. He's not just sovereign in a world where things are going according to plan, he's even able to work all things together for good in a world where things aren't going according to plan. That's true sovereignty, isn't it? Occasionally we have those, to be honest, fairly false moments of feeling like we've got our lives under control. That's an illusion, by the way. (laughs) You'll never finally have your life nailed down and under control. You can't fasten life down in your own powers and think it's secured. We have those moments where we do. But have you noticed, it only takes a couple of things that we didn't see coming to happen, and suddenly we're floundering, thinking, I haven't got this under control. See, we come to a God who, no matter how much evil is at work in this world, he's still under control. He's still in control. He's still sovereign. He's sovereign in creation when things are working well. He's sovereign in redemption even when things are not going well. God is able, as Paul writes to to the Romans, to work all things together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's why we pray. That's why we seek to be a people who don't panic, but who pray, because even when we feel our vulnerability, it's still true about his sovereignty. Now, I don't know about you this morning, but that 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 leaves us with a choice, doesn't it? Firstly, it leaves you with a choice this morning. If you're not yet a Christian, it leaves you with a choice as to whether you will come under the sovereignty of God by becoming a friend and a follower of Jesus Christ, or whether you will be forever on the wrong side of the one who is king. You know, you have a choice to make this morning. Even as you hear this message, you're going to have to make a choice. I think it was Billy Graham, the famous evangelist, who used to say, not to decide is to decide not to. This morning, you've heard a message about the sovereignty of God. If you leave thinking, I'm not sure I'm going to make a decision this morning, you've decided not to make a decision. I encourage you this morning, it's a good morning this morning, even as baptisms are happening, it's a great morning to bow the knee and to give your life to the one who is the sovereign Lord. You want to get on the right side of this king, and then you can pray and receive his power in prayer. But it may be that you've already done that. You are a Christian this morning. We still have choices to make as Christians, though, because it's still possible, isn't it, to be a Christian, to believe in God's sovereignty, but to act out of our vulnerability. Do you know what I mean by that? Technically, I believe in God's sovereignty, but in the way that I actually function, I'm more influenced by my own vulnerability and prone to panic and anger and all the sort of negative places out of which we can function when we're not trusting in the sovereignty of God. You know, we can ruin a lot of things, can't we? We can either pray, that's one option, or... We can panic, take tranquilizers, and become a control freak. (laughs) You know, we've got options here, haven't we? But it is possible, isn't it, to ruin relationships because we function in them out of the negative place of our own vulnerability and insecurity. We try and get everything under our control, and we stifle and ruin things. It's possible to ruin children that way by being parents, who instead of having a healthy sense in which, whilst we take care of our children, God is nevertheless the sovereign one 
It's, it's possible to overprotect our children to the point that we're not actually functioning from a healthy place and we don't do them any good either. Sovereign, the sovereignty of God really touches down in the way that we do relationships, in the way that we trust God with our finances. You know, if, if you're trying to achieve control and security by having enough, you'll never be free to enjoy what you've got and be generous with it. But if actually we find our financial security in, in the sovereignty of God, we're free to enjoy what we have and be generous from it as well. Isn't it good to know there's a God who's sovereign over all things and he's taking care of us? It frees us to live a life of peace and of joy and of prayer. I was uh, reading, you may have heard of the founder of, um, of Methodism, John Wesley. And uh, Wesley makes an extraordinary quote, which is on the slide behind me. He says this, I do not remember, this is late in his life now, 1780, I do not remember to have felt lowness of spirits for one quarter of an hour since I was born. That's an amazing thing to say, isn't it? It wasn't 15 minutes of my life where I felt depressed. He goes on, By the grace of God, I never fret, I repine at nothing, I am discontented with nothing, and to have persons at my ear fretting and murmuring at everything is like tearing the flesh off my bones. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, I live with the confidence in God. And then he goes on to say, I think it's just dropped off the slide, but I, I know this bit because it's really impacted me. He goes on to say this. You say, how does someone live like this? And it's, the final clause is this. He says this, I see God sitting on his throne and ruling all things well. See, that's how you live like this. <laughs> the sovereignty of God. Here is a man who's able in every circumstance of life to say no matter what is happening, no matter how hard this is, nevertheless, this is part of the sovereignty of God. And I will live out of the goodness of that rather than coming under it. These were people who prayed because the God who they prayed to is sovereign. All right, well, just quickly, two more questions. Fourthly, what did they actually pray for? You notice here they've spent five verses. We've only got seven verses recorded of their prayer. Five of these verses are not actually praying for anything. They're just telling themselves about who God is. There's a bit of a lesson in that, isn't there? They spend five verses remembering who their father is and two verses actually asking for something. That's probably a pretty good proportion, isn't it? I think that recalls the Lord's Prayer, doesn't it? Our Father in heaven. Let's remember who he is. Then we can say, give us our daily bread. Well, what is it that they ask for? And I find this, just think about this in the context. Don't move on to the next slide. That's perfect. Just pause there. This is what they're going to pray. Now, Lord, consider their threats and dot, dot, dot. I wonder, what would you and I have prayed? You know, two of, two of us have just been arrested. Families are at stake. This is a fearful situation. What would you pray for? <laughs> I think I would be in self-preservation mode, wouldn't you? I, I would drop into a defensive mode of prayer that said, Lord, and now, please, take care of our families and help us just to stay out of trouble and, and, and please just make us wise and sensitive and da-da-da-da-da. Now, there's nothing wrong in a sense with praying like that, but I find it astonishing to hear what they actually prayed for. Please bear in mind now, listen to this, the thing that had got them in trouble in the first place were two things. Number one, preaching boldly about Jesus, and number two, a miracle where a lame person was healed. Okay, so bear in mind, those were the two things that got them in trouble with the authorities. Now listen to their prayer. Click on to the next slide. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. That's number one. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That's number two. 
Do you see that? They've just asked for the very things that got them in trouble in the first place. What extraordinary, courageous prayer. This is what you might call counterintuitive prayer. It's the opposite of what intuitively you would think you should pray for. If you examine the what of your prayer, if you examine what is it that makes up most of the time that I pray, it's an interesting exercise, isn't it? What am I praying for? I find this deeply challenging. These were men and women who realized if God's sovereign and we're his servants, we're not going to drop into defensive mode and just back off and go quiet. No, 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 in the name of Jesus, we're going to step forwards again and go again for the kingdom of God to advance. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's that kind of praying that they push into, not defense mode, but advance mode. Now that's tough, isn't it? When you are actually genuinely threatened to not coil back, but to step forwards again, that's true courage. Some of us may have backed off a little bit. You know, we we tried being full on for Jesus, but actually it, it, it was hard. And so we just dropped back to a sort of safe zone where we don't expect much and so we're not easily disappointed. You know, it's easy to do that, isn't it, as Christians, just to sort of back off and go quiet, make our excuses and just keep our head down and try and stay out of trouble. No, no, the call of God is not to be like that, but to say, your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, we're going again. Help us to speak boldly. Stretch out your hand to perform more miracles in the name of Jesus. When I hear this prayer, I think of uh, a a chap that I actually taught briefly at um, CML in Watford. And uh, we'll call him James. That's not actually his name, but we'll call him James. He was, uh, he was actually from Pakistan, and he'd come over to the UK. I think he had a three-year visa, student visa. And in, within the two years that he was here before I met him, he'd become a Christian from a, from a devout Muslim background. He'd, he'd come to faith in Christ. I taught him a little bit, and then he was going back to Pakistan. His visa had run out. But now as a Christian, now I don't need to probably tell you that your life expectancy has been significantly reduced <laughs> if you go back to Pakistan having converted to Christ. And so I remember praying for James and asking him, James, what would you like me to pray for? Again, intuitively, you'd think, well, protection, safety, stay, you know, just to have wisdom. I remember James looking at me and said, I'd like you to pray that God would help me to tell my family about Jesus. That's humbling, isn't it? That's courage. That's a counterintuitive prayer that says, if God is sovereign, I'm not going to stop speaking about Jesus. I want to encourage us to pray those kinds of bold, audacious prayers. Be bold, be strong, for the Lord your God is with you. Let's not back off, but in our workplaces, in our home lives, whatever situation we're in, with, with sensitivity, with tact, nevertheless, with boldness, Lord, help us to speak about Jesus. And then finally, if that's the what they prayed for, finally, how does prayer change things? How did God act when they prayed? This is what we read. After they prayed... The place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I want you to notice in particular, the place that they were meeting was shaken. Not the place where the Jewish authorities were meeting was shaken. See, sometimes that would be almost the the desire of our prayers. God, it's not us that needs to be shaken up here. It's them. You know, they're the enemies. Smite them. Shake them. Let them have an earthquake under their building. No, no, no. God's primary priority is not to judge the world at this time, but to shake up the church. His primary agenda is to get us, like a bottle of wonderful champagne, shaken up to the point that the top blows off and we really do share the message of Jesus. 
His purpose for this message is primarily to shake up the church. Shake the church into action. Shake us out of our lethargy and out of our fear to act and speak boldly in the name of Jesus. I hope you're feeling, you know, sometimes we say, yeah, I hope you're sitting comfortably. I hope you're not (laughs) in the nicest possible way. I hope this morning's message has shaken your soul up a little bit. Because if you're a believer this morning, there's champagne in there, (laughs) the Holy Spirit. And God wants this jar of clay, there's nothing special about us, this ordinary pot, nevertheless filled with a treasure of the Holy Spirit, to be so shaken up that there's something explodes from Forest Town Church. Not just a little whimper, but an explosion of the power and grace of God to a world that desperately needs to hear it. That's, it's for that reason that God is shaking us this morning, disturbing our comforts, that we might speak and live boldly for Him. It might be that you're not yet a Christian this morning, and you feel shaken a little bit by this. I want to encourage you this morning, that's because God loves you, and He's wanting to allow the release of His presence and work in your life. Maybe this morning, what a great morning it would be to become a Christian. Maybe as you see the baptism pool, and you're going to see some people being bold and saying, I want everyone to know I'm following Jesus. Maybe this morning is a great morning for you to say, actually, that's me going to be next. It's my turn next. I'm not going to hide any longer this faith I have in Christ. I'm going to be bold and courageous in his name. Maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you've been baptized, but you've backed off a bit. You know what I mean? You've stopped praying with boldness. You've dropped into self-defense mode, self-preservation mode, and you're acting more out of your vulnerability than his sovereignty. This morning is a good morning to say, Lord, forgive me for that. And I'm stepping back up in the name of Jesus. So with that in mind... It feels appropriate that we should pray, don't you think? Because as Lucy said, it really actually works. And uh, so I want to invite us to pray. But because God is sovereign, I just, uh, I wonder whether a a good way to pray this morning, for those who can physically manage it, I wonder if a good way to pray would be on our knees. It's a, you don't have to pray on your knees, it's not like that's a crucial part of it, but I do find sometimes just, it's a way of humbling ourselves, isn't it, before God. And so if this morning, not for everyone, but if this morning... God has shaken your soul up a bit. Maybe to become a Christian and to be clear that you're going to be a Christian from now on, not just being on the edge of it and almost sort of keeping everything, keeping your options open, but saying, no, no, I'm I'm going to be one now. I'm going to follow Jesus. Maybe it's your turn to kneel. Or maybe you are a Christian, but you're conscious that you've been in self-preservation mode, acting out of your vulnerability, not his sovereignty. And you say, I'm going to kneel to call on God and say, God, would you help me to step up again in the name of Jesus? If God's shaken you up, um, I invite you to kneel with me and I'd like to pray for us. So if that's you, just kneel with me and uh, I'd like to pray. Please do stay in your seat if that isn't where you're at. But if God's shaken you up this morning and you say, I want to express that afresh, then I just invite you to kneel and I want to pray for us. But before I pray, I want to invite you to pray. You know, God is a great leveler of people. You may not be important on earth, you may not be someone that people listen to in your workplace, but he listens now as you pray in the name of Jesus. So call on him. Call on his name. Ask him if there's areas where you are feeling afraid and intimidated. Give him, say, Lord, like you did with these early Christians, fill me with boldness again to live and speak for Jesus. Call on the name of the Lord. If you're on your knees this morning because you want to put your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you. The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So call on his name. Ask him for forgiveness. 
Ask him for a new start. Ask him to fill your heart with the Holy Spirit and make you one of his people, and he will. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. We, we pray, Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth. We kneel this morning before our Creator. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth. You're sovereign in creation. But we thank you also that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem this world. And even when he was crucified, and it seemed like the most disastrous thing that could happen, in fact, you were outworking your sovereign plan, that through his death we may have life. Because he was condemned, we might be forgiven. Because he was put to death, we might have a new start and be raised to new life. Father, thank you that you're sovereign, and even in the death of Christ, your purpose is being worked out. And Lord, therefore, we come before you to say, Father, forgive us our sins. Forgive us for holding back and dropping back into self-preservation mode. Forgive us for acting out of our vulnerability, acting out of fear, acting out of anger, being people prone to panic and anxiety more than prayer. Lord, forgive us for where prayer has been our last resort. Help it to become our first resource in Jesus' name. And this morning we begin that by calling on your name in prayer. Lord, I pray for those who are intimidated, who have felt threatened by people or circumstances. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus now, would you bring a holy boldness. The place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke your word boldly. And Lord, we pray that for us. Shake us up, Lord, and fill us with the Holy Spirit that we might have a renewed boldness in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father. And I pray this week would be a week where, to quote uh, John Wesley, we see God sitting on his throne and ruling all things well. May it be a week where we live out of the sovereignty of God. May it be a week where we pray. I pray for the men in this room, Lord. I pray that you would help us to move beyond our insecurity, beyond our vulnerability, beyond all the things that leave us feeling inadequate. And to remind us this morning that whatever else we can't seem to do, we can pray. That's always an option for us to be men who start the day on our knees, who finish the day on our knees, men of prayer. Lord, I pray that we'd be Christian men who really pray, and Christian women who really pray. Thank you for this gift of prayer. Even now, as we pray, we are touching heaven and changing earth. It really actually works. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.